0: All right, first lecture of the new year, time to jump back in. Um, So when we left off at the end of last year, I had three different people from out there in internet land uh, write in and ask me questions. And I have been remiss in not addressing them at this point. Um, But I want to start rectifying that today. Much as I got caught up with that whole philosophy of America question, which, you know, in 2020 it sort of made sense that it would be burning on my mind... Um, as we were sort of watching good reasoning and American idealism sort of fall to ashes around us. Um, Hopefully we will have less of that to deal with this year, though, who knows. Um... At any rate, after some consideration and some research and just, you know, sitting around wondering about these three questions, I've realized that at the end of the day, before we can address any one of them in this particular format, we kind of have to talk about the underlying issues addressing all of them. Um, So the first question from Pavel Pavlovich out in Belgrade, I believe, uh, his question was about Sartre. In fact, it was a very specific question. He was asking whether Sartre would consider Husserl's theory of phenomenological reduction transgressive. Um, And this is the sort of question that I felt rather daunted by because I am not a Sartre scholar and I haven't even read Husserl um, but nonetheless, I feel like I might as well take a stab at it, I am probably better equipped than most. Um, and it sounds like he is coming at it from the literature perspective, so he doesn't have a terribly great background in philosophy, though maybe I'm just reading this awry. At any rate, I do want to tackle the question, I am still reading some Sartre as research, I have done my research into Husserl, though again, still haven't read any of his like actual primary sources in this case, and in that I am remiss. Um, But we will be confronting that class hopefully in the next couple of weeks before things get crazy on my end with the new semester. Um, The second question was a little bit more historical than I'm used to. This person asked whether um, German immigrants during the big push of German immigration uh, in the 19th century to America brought any major philosophical ideas along with them. Um, which I find a fascinating question, and there's a lot going on in Germany in the 19th century. Like, this is the golden age of German philosophy. Um, So it would be really interesting to me to sort of track down and discuss exactly how German philosophy uh, influenced American philosophy in the 19th century through this stream of immigrants. Um, so we will talk about that. I've got a book to go through there. And once we confront Sartre, I intend to talk about 19th century German immigration and how that influences American ideals and philosophy. Third question was pretty much for Mountain Left Field, but it's actually the one that I'm most equipped to answer like right now. And basically the question was, what's up with Heidegger? Uh, which is a perfectly good question, like you could spend an entire semester, and I have, basically trying to answer the question, what's up with Heidegger? Um, Heidegger is an incredibly complicated thinker. He is very abstract. If you are not familiar with the whole like, study of phenomenology and continental philosophies uh, specifically, then you are probably not going to make heads or tails just coming to being and time from a completely different perspective. However, when I say that I'm actually fairly equipped to answer this question, I'm actually am i took several semesters on heidegger related thinkers uh during my tenure at boston college i studied under john salas who is one of the foremost heideggerian scholars uh in america today like i can actually answer this one though i should probably at least go back and read the first few sections of being in time and skim you know what is metaphysics and a few of his other major texts which i have uh, hanging around in my apartment Um, But at any rate, you'll notice that all three of these questions deal explicitly with phenomenology. Um phenomenology is at the basis of Pavel Pavlovich's question from Sartre. It is absolutely the major German philosophical movement that is going on when the big stream of German immigration is taking place in the 19th century, and you cannot talk about Heidegger without talking about the the phenomenological forebears um, that sort of inspire and, like, shape the ideas that he's playing with in the 20th century um and phenomenology isn't something we've talked about in this format like it's something that i pretty clearly avoided uh in my intro to philosophy lectures largely because it's like ludicrously complex and you know wildly different from the sort of history of philosophy as it sort of takes place. the The closer you get to contemporary philosophy, the more sort of scattered philosophical thought becomes. You know, where you can track sort of major ideas and major movements as sort of this like single line um, through ancient and medieval and modern philosophy. By the time that you hit German idealism, it's starting to break um, because philosophy itself is starting to break at that moment. Like this is the moment when philosophy gives way. To all the new sciences to all the new sort of studies when you know literary criticism criticism is breaking off and when psychology is breaking off and when you know theological criticism is breaking off. Um like what had been philosophy and natural philosophy for literally 2000 years at this point um is starting to sort of fragment into all of these different academic disciplines. Um and therefore it becomes harder and harder to tell what is philosophy proper is philosophy dominated by one idea or several. Um what is the method that philosophers should be undergoing? It's not nearly as univocal. As it had been for the last 2,000 years. Um, so with that in mind, let's talk about phenomenology. Like, I don't want to, you know, spend too much time on it. I suspect we will come back and revisit some of these thinkers in, in the future if if we have occasion to. Because um, they're all fascinating thinkers. Um But I do want to sort of start with just an overview, like one lecture, one hour, whatever it takes to sort of talk about all of the major players, all of the sort of major ideas that get kicked around in this movement of German idealism and this sort of nascent phenomenology. Um, So today we're going to talk about that. Today we're going to talk about phenomenology from Hegel to Husserl. Um, As a sort of way of getting our facts straight and sort of showing you where I'm coming from, as well as preparing us for the bigger discussions down the road of how Sartre fits into all this, how Heidegger fits into all this, how many of uh, these ideas come across to America versus not. Um, Like, there's a lot going on here. So at the very least, like, let's do our brief summary. Let's do our overview and see where we end up. Um, what's more is I find I'm talking about this a lot lately. Like, I have friends who work in psychology and they are dealing with sort of Uh, the fallout from, like, phenomenological and existential theories of therapy and psychoanalysis. Um, Phenomenology is very much the inspiration for Freud and basically the entire discipline of psychology altogether. Um, There's a lot of sort of applications to this stuff nowadays, and it is, like I said, heady philosophical work. Um, the other part of the reason why I don't teach it to my intro classes is because it's way over their heads. Um, you know, it's one thing to pick up Thomas Aquinas and to be, like, head scratching as a result of his, you know, very rigorous but very, um, difficult sort of thinking. It's another thing to pick up Hegel and just be like, what the fuck is going on here? Um it is really confusing stuff. Uh, so, you know, here is my little effort to sort of handhold you into it. If you're more interested, by all means, email me. I'd love to discuss these guys further, do research on the ones I don't know as well. Um, but here is Professor Kozlowski's crash course to phenomenology and 19th century German idealism. Um, And as always, before we can get to the phenomenologists, we have to put these things in context. Um, You'll remember from my discussions of an intro to philosophy, if you have listened through them, that we sort of briefly cover Kant. Uh, it's time to talk about Kant again. So after Hume basically destroyed the world of philosophy by saying that metaphysics was dead and that there was no such thing as you know, deductive reasoning in science and that all deductive conclusions were basically nonsense, Kant immediately turned around and tackled him and said, all right, we have to make space for synthetic a priori judgments. We have to make room for science to actually be more than just some kind of you know, custom or inductive reasoning. But the problem that Kant immediately ran into was that deductive evaluations about the world could not apply to what he recognized as things in themselves. Um... He was basically stuck in the same problem that Descartes was stuck in: this mind-body dualism. On the one hand, he could grasp truths about the world, these synthetic a priori judgments, but they could not actually like affect the world. Um, so, to not to you know get too deep into this, he basically divided up the world into phenomena, i.e., stuff that we observe, stuff that we experience, um, and noumena things in themselves. Um, you might be able to get all of the measurements of a table. You might be able to wrap on it and see what sound it makes. You might be able to appreciate the color or the texture. Um, you might be able to encounter this table in a variety of ways. You can even look at things like its extension in space or its duration in time from Kant's perspective. You can categorize it. You can understand it in a variety of ways, but you will never, ever, ever know the table's inner life. You can't even know if it has an inner life, so to speak. Um, likewise, anytime that you meet another human being, they can speak and they will provide phenomena for you to evaluate and you can understand them in terms of height and weight and measurement and color and whatever. But at the end of the day, you will never ever know whether a human being is thinking or not. You will never have evidence that exists in the noumenal world. Um, We can make those assumptions on the fairly solid basis that, you know, I think therefore someone who looks exactly like I look probably thinks as well, Um, but that's as close as we can come to it. This distinction between the phenomenal world, the world of experience on the one hand, and the noumenal world, the world of things of them in themselves on the other hand, is absolutely divided. You cannot get there from here. And this is a problem. Like, this has been a problem in philosophy for a long time. Plato was kicking around issues as far as, like, can we know the things as they are in themselves? The Theotetus is a grand discussion of exactly how language fits into this whole issue and whether or not we can know things in themselves or not. Um, So this is not new, this is still a major philosophical problem that has sort of been haunting for philosophers for a long time. Kant just sort of articulates it in his typically Kantian systematic fashion. Um, He is articulating exactly where the boundaries lie, insofar as he can see them. Um, But at the same time as Kant is sort of laying this distinction out, um, Hegel is starting to approach this question from a completely different standpoint, a fairly revolutionary one, um, where Kant is trying desperately to, like bridge the gap between mind and world, Hegel basically just combines the two. Um, His approach is less a systematic, like, quasi-mathematical, quasi-scientific account where, like, everything is in its separate boxes and everything is, uh, like, understood in painstaking logical detail. And instead, Hegel focuses on the experience of knowledge Um, And his book, The Phenomenology of Spirit, is groundbreaking insofar as it does the work of philosophy, does the work of sort of like understanding our place in the world without ever leaving the confines of the mind, without ever trying to leave the confines of the mind and sort of recognizing our subjective locus. Um, for lack of a better term, what Heidegger would call Dasein, though Hegel is not nearly as interested in making it like quite as personal as Heidegger does. Um, so if Kant told us that the phenomenal world is all we have access to, um, Hegel basically talks about how the phenomenal world gives us insight into the one being in itself that we do have access to, namely ourselves. Um, and if this all sounds super abstract and confusing, oh, we are nowhere yet. Uh, Hegel is extremely abstract and confusing. Um, but what I want to stress, at least first of all, um, is that he calls this phenomenology. He calls this a study of phenomena. Um, he is not interested in reality the way that like medieval philosophers like Aquinas were interested in reality. He is not going to make claims like this is um, or this is not. He is not interested in these sort of existential claims. Um, as opposed to metaphysics, phenomenology is just the study of what appears to us. Um, Hegel perfectly accepts and does not deny the fact that he is locked into his subjective perspective. He is going to argue um, that this subjectivity yields objectivity. And in fact, this is like the, you know, a, a sp- aspiration of basically all phenomenologists. And I think he makes a fairly compelling point by the end of the Phenomenology of Spirit. Um but at the end of the day it is told as though from the first person perspective like it isn't there are no eyes in here so to speak um and f- instead he's sort of looking at spirit as you know this thing that inhabits us and that also apparently inhabits the world there are definitely some like overarching monist or pantheist tendencies to the phenomenology of spirit um but overwhelmingly this is spirit's story Um, and we are in a sense spirit in that way we as consciousness as sort of consciousness united in a grand historical consciousness are sort of apprehending the world and trying to figure out what's going on not by positing this is the case or this is not the case but instead by just accepting whatever comes to us as a phenomenon as something to be like studied and sort of interacted with. And that's the key here. Like knowledge, understanding kind of isn't on the table. That's what separates phenomenology from what is typically understood as epistemology in modern philosophy. So where Descartes and Hume and Kant are all very concerned with the mind, Um, How does the mind work? How does the mind get knowledge? How does, you know, what are the limitations of the mind's knowledge? Hegel doesn't have a category for mind at all. Um, Like, mind shows up in the phenomenology of spirit. Mind arguably could just be substituted for the word spirit in some sense. Um, But he doesn't. Like, spirit is the driving force here. Um, There is no intellect, no knowledge in that sense. And this sort of is the paradigm that most phenomenologists are going to work in. They're going to perceive the world not as some thing that exists out there in space somewhere and has some objective qualities, but rather they're going to study the world as it appears to us. Um, as it appears to spirit in the case of Hegel, as it appears to Dasein in the case of Heidegger, um, instead of trying to like wrap their brain around what is or these objective truths, they're instead going to just accept the fact that our phenomenal experience is subjective and just rely on it, just go with that. Um And this sort of, like, cuts the Gordian knot that all of these philosophers have been dealing with in their obsession with reality and their obsession with, like, trying to understand things as they are in themselves, as Kant would say. Um, Every philosopher from Plato to Descartes acknowledged um, that things, like, as they appear to us are irrefutable. Um, Even if you are not currently being attacked by juggalos, if you think you are, no one can gainsay that. Um, If you say, I see, you know, red, and there's no red around you, that doesn't mean that you're wrong, it just means that your experience is locked in your own perspective. So by addressing the world not as the world, as discrete entities separate from ourselves, but rather as they appear to us as phenomena um hegel is basically dealing with the one kind of philosophy that he can trust um this is what it seems um is basically like his assumption and the assumption that all phenomenological phenomenologists will follow um so this is the first part that's like super important to hegelian philosophy this phenomenological approach this is very much the birth of phenomenology as a philosophical discipline although hegel is I would say rigorous, but he is not systematic. Um, He does not have, like, some overarching plot. Um, Hegel's method is usually referred to as Hegelian dialectic. Um, Like Plato playing his ideas off of other thinkers in, uh, in the various dialogues where Socrates will argue against Gorgias or Phaedrus or whatever, Hegel also sees himself as always engaged with an other. Spirit is constantly defining itself based on what it finds opposed to itself. So in the opening chapters of the Phenomenology of Spirit, spirit encounters sense certainty. Spirit encounters like objects in the world that are not itself and therefore says, I am not that. But what is important about Hegelian dialectic is that it collapses. It is mobile. Um, It is constantly moving throughout the phenomenology of spirit. So when you encounter another object, you say, I am not that thing, and then you realize, spirit realizes, that you have just defined yourself based on this thing that you supposedly are not, in which case you are that thing. Like, you cannot separate yourself from that thing. Your definition of yourself is based on that thing, and therefore that thing is irrevocably part of you. And this is the Hegelian dialectic. On the one hand, it is a separation of self and other, but on the other hand, it is a collapsing together of self and other. But there is still steps left. These two steps of first, like, acknowledgement of other and then synthesis with other then sort of ascend are superseded by a sort of acknowledgement that this process is constantly going on that every moment in this cycle is an infinite like perpetual and therefore constant or predictable moment but also that this moment collapses and comes back together again You supersede this by acknowledging, by becoming self-conscious and recognizing that this process is constantly going on. Self and other collapse into oneself. This then breaks apart into self and other again. And around and around we go in this cycle. And the cycle is us. But then that cycle just becomes opposed to another cycle. And now you have the same thing. People frequently refer to this as like thesis, antithesis, and then synthesis, but that's very much a mischaracterization. Like, the synthesis is a one of the theses, so to speak. Um, and therefore, like, the process of alfkaben as he calls it this supersession as it's usually translated into english like it is simultaneously you know self and other but also the union of self and other as a separate moment and then the sort of acknowledgement of this process as the third moment which itself becomes the first moment of the next section um and I realize that this is like super crazy abstract, but this is the very barest account of Hegelian dialectic that I can come up with. Um, perhaps a better example, like the most famous example in the phenomenology of spirit is the relationship of the master and the slave. Um, according to Hegel, and this will be the foundation of many philosophers down the road, we'll get to them... Um, A slave is a slave because of the master, and a master the master because of the slave. Like, a master cannot be a master, cannot hold that power unless he has someone to hold it over. The master cannot be master without the slave being the slave. And therefore... The slave has power over the master, just as the master supposedly has power over the slave. They are engaged in the dialectic as well. The master and slave collapse into one another. Each slave is also master over the master who is their slave. Which, I know, paradoxical and confusing, but here we are. But there is always another step. So for Hegel, that third step that sort of collapse into one another that acknowledgement of the unification of master and slave is the birth of organized religion first in the greek sense and then in the christian sense where jesus is the intermediary linking master to slave god to man um, and allowing them to also collapse into one another he is the consciousness of this process made actual And that's the other thing that I want to stress here. Like, as crazy as the Hegelian dialectic is, and you will not need to know it for us to sort of deal with these questions happily, if you do want to learn more, by all means read The Phenomenology of Spirit, just do not rush. Like, plan to read every section two or three times until you get a handle on it. Um, Perhaps, again, we will talk about Hegel in the future, um, since I am weirdly knowledgeable about him. Um, and I am badly mischaracterizing him here. Like, there's no way to properly characterize Hegel without, like, just rereading him, basically, um, and explaining, as my one professor used to explain it, the concrete moments of infinity. Um, what's in this last sec, like, component of Hegelian philosophy that we need to sort of concentrate on is this historical dimension. Um, just as this master-slave relationship is reconciled, is superseded by Christian philosophy and theology, Hegel will frequently make this kind of move over the course of the phenomenology of spirit and the philosophy of right and the science of logic. Um, Hegel sees this movement of spirit as not just being dialectical, as being this sort of like abstractly philosophical, but as something concretely happening in history and um, very, like the whole phenomenology of spirit, the whole history of spirit, the whole movement of spirit is borne out in historical events. So Christianity, Greek philosophy, Greek mythology, um all the way up to, you know, like ancient philosophy, medieval philosophy, and uh, modern philosophy. All of these things are individual moments in the process of spirits coming to recognize and understand itself. Um, all of this grand play of human civilization is spirit figuring itself out. Um, and it is important to notice that just as Kant in his political philosophy contended that like utopia was an inevitability... Of um, of like human civilization that we were, despite all of the evidence to the contrary, moving inexorably toward a utopian republic. Hegel goes a step further and says history is at an end. Um, his conclusion in the Phenomenology of Spirit is that all philosophical movements of spirit, all dialectical movements, all of spirit's coming to know itself, has concluded. We are at the end of history, in short. Philosophy is done, Hegel tells us. Um, Which is quite the bold thing to say, and weirdly not, you know, unique. Like, there are many philosophers who have concluded that, you know, I wrote my book and now we're done with philosophy. You can all go home, enjoy your, you know, non-philosophical lives now that I've answered all your questions. Um, Obviously this never takes, and, you know, Hegel is perhaps the silliest of the examples when it comes right down to it, because like immediately everybody shot that idea down. Um, but it is important to notice that this is inevitably historical. This is spirit coming to understand and like experience itself. Um, and, you know, there, one of the major two dominant, like, ideological perspectives in 19th century philosophy was this utopian attitude. Um, This idea that everything was either coming to an end or had reached its end, that we were in the greatest age of human civilization, and that, you know, there wasn't anything to accomplish after this. Um, And Hegel very much embodies that. Um, But importantly, that's not the end of the story of phenomenology. Like, obviously, we here in 2020 can look back at, like, 1820 and say, well, that was awfully silly, time didn't end, philosophy didn't end, and in fact, some of the most violent conflicts in human history have occurred since that time. Um, Hegel obviously did not know that. He figured that it was safe to say, you know, Napoleon's taking over the world, everything's great, let's just call it, let's just all go home. Um, and not do philosophy anymore. That very much did kind of seem like the end of the world, I imagine. Um, But the end of the world is always postponed. Like, we can always do worse, so to speak. Um, So, Hegel's whole philosophy, his whole philosophical project, this phenomenology that takes place in the course of history, that uses this methodical, dialectic, that is both, like, predictable and unpredictable, that is constantly transcending itself and therefore can't actually, like, be boxed down into sort of repeating moments, but the movement still seems roughly the same. This fired the imaginations of Europeans across the continent, um, and Hegel very rapidly became an even more dominant, like, ideological system than even Kant. Um, Neo-Kantians were definitely fighting the Hegelians and the young Hegelians throughout the earlier part of the 19th century, Um, but Hegel very much won out. Like, It's hard to say exactly which of the two thinkers had the greatest influence, and it probably really depends on whether you're sitting on the analytical or continental divide at this point. Analytical thinkers probably think that Hegel was nonsense and Kant was, you know, the greatest thinker to come out of the 19th century, um, if any of those thinkers were great. Whereas continental philosophers are very likely to admit Kant's importance, but also sort of feel a terrible debt um, to he- Hegel and Hegelian philosophy, much as they might not like it. Um, In most of the Continental thinkers I've encountered, and basically anyone doing phenomenology um, in the last 150 years has to contend with Hegel. Um, Like, Hegel is at the beginning of all this. He set the tone of what phenomenology was going to look like, even if he didn't really, you know, flesh it out in a way that was workable, systematic, or repeatable. Um... And what is really obvious about this influence is the fact that Hegelians became the dominant voices in the 19th century. Um, So again, not to get too deep into any one of these, but I do want to talk about sort of three parallel strains of thought that developed... Um, out of Hegelian philosophy and in reaction to Hegelian philosophy. Um, Sort of each one capitalizing on one of the characteristics that is specific to Hegelian philosophy, developing it more. Just as, you know, back in ancient philosophy when Plato and Aristotle died, you have four different schools of philosophy each sort of highlighting one of the key ideas present in either Plato or in And if it isn't obvious, the first and arguably most important we have to talk about is Karl Marx. Um, The Communist Manifesto, Das Kapital, all of Marx's work, is thoroughly indebted to Hegel. Um, Just as Hegel was sort of exploring history from this dialectic of the spirit coming to understand itself... Marx basically adopted that system and made it way more concrete and pragmatic. Um, His attitude was not that we are at the end of history, although he believed that we were on the cusp of it, but he believed that the only way to come to that end of history was through, shocker, conflict. So in the Communist Manifesto, he is basically saying, you know, here we are, we're on the doorstep of utopia, all we need is for the worker, the proletariat, to rise up and take power back from the bourgeoisie, from the, you know, landowners and the the capitalists. Um, so his dialectic, just as Hegel's dialectic was applied to this sort of, like, abstract spirit, Marx is applying his dialectic to like actual right now history and economics, um, which Marx would probably not see as two separate things. Um, so for what Marx is sort of taking from Hegel is this acknowledgement that Hegelian dialectic and indeed all historical development requires conflict, requires fighting, um, just as there is a conflict between self and other in Hegel in Hegel's phenomenology of spirit that brings us to sort of recognition of oneself and self-consciousness so Marx is basically saying the only way that we can achieve a sort of utopian society is when the lower class and the upper classes, like fight against each other come to common recognition create a society that suits both of them in this tradition of self-consciousness um but it was up to the proletariat the you know larger group to make that movement take place because you know anyone who's in power is perfectly content to stay there um unrest will come from the bottom um and i should note that like This is not just ideological. Like, obviously this has really practical consequences, but Marx is also watching this happen in the 19th century. Um, You know, as much as Hegel is writing his Phenomenology of Spirit in a sort of historically turbulent time, what with the French Revolution and the, the Napoleonic Wars, Marx has watched Europe tear itself apart for the last two decades like city after city is falling into unrest as all of these laborers are basically like breaking down their factories throwing away their tools and refusing to do what their quote masters are telling them to do Um, the american revolution may have been a wild success by comparison to the rest of these revolutions but that model is being adopted all over the place um, France is undergoing a new revolution, like every ten to fifteen years. At this point, Germany and Switzerland and Belgium and England are all enjoying revolutions on a regular basis. Russia is enduring some of some pretty famous revolutions, although none will like top the Russian Revolution in the early twentieth century. The fact of the matter is, people are upset. Like, people are really upset. Like, I cannot express to you how bad the circumstances for them were and therefore how badly they felt they needed to change them. Um, like, you've probably heard stories of how bad the working conditions were in industrial era factories, like, you know, horrible air quality, like, incredibly long hours that were completely unrestricted or regulated, like, child labor, you know, people are getting injured and there's no form of workers' compensation, so they're just, like, suddenly destitute for no reason because, you know, their arm got caught in a combine or something, um, These were dangerous, unpleasant places to work, and there were no protections being offered from the state. So these people are mad. They're mad all of the time. Um, And this is expressed by revolution. And Marx very much recognizes that and taps into it, um, which is why he sort of catapults himself to this place of incredible importance. Like, in economic theory, there are no figures nearly as towering as Karl Marx turns out to be. To the point that, like, any kind of class analysis or class critique in literary criticism or otherwise is usually referred to as Marxist. Um, And I want to stress here that, like, especially in contemporary thinking, like, anytime you bring up Karl Marx, you're immediately like, You're a commie! And the, you know, panicking starts because in the West, like, communism has a certain ugly, like, reputation... Um, I want to stress that, you know, at the, by the end of his life, Karl Marx famously quoted that he is, if anything, not a communist. Um, he is not a Marxist, so to speak. Like, Marx himself was not a Marxist. Dude was a theorist. Dude was a philosopher. He was not, you know, agitating in the streets. Um, and by the end of his life, people were, in fact, using his philosophy as a way of agitating in the streets. Um, it was, you know, in the same way that, like, you can see fairly good ideas completely distorted by, you know, circu- like circulation on the internet. Like, you get, you know, one person says one relatively intelligent libertarian thing and all of a sudden you have, like, all of these offshoot groups who think that they're the best and basically use them as an excuse to do terrible things. Marx was a thinker who observed a phenomenon, who used Hegelian dialectic to describe the unrest that he was witnessing in Europe at the time, who wrote a document who, that was admittedly pretty inflammatory, the Communist Manifesto ends with, you know, workers of the world unite, and then people used it as an excuse to like destroy all sorts of stuff, um, to do more damage than good in some cases, Um, And what's more, you know, not to get too deep into sort of like 20th century misconceptions, but the communism that, you know, sort of inspired the Red Scare and, you know, was at the basis of the Cold War, it wasn't communism. Like, what Marx is laying out in his Communist Manifesto is a government ruled by the workers, A government that has no figureheads, that has no class distinctions, a government where these class distinctions are abolished. Um, And what's significant about like 20th century communism, like the USSR and communist China, is more often than not, they just use communist rhetoric to back fascist practices. Um, like, Stalin was not a communist. Stalin said he was a communist to justify his dictatorship. Um, that's not communism. Like, for Marx, the importance here was to abolish the classes, or at least to sort of like observe that revolution is the way that you write um, entrenched class uh, discrepancies. Whereas Stalin just entrenched them more, like Stalin just raised himself as the upper class along with his party and said, we are the communist party, therefore we have your best interests in mind, when clearly that was not the case. Um, so, you know, first of all, like, don't hate the commies, they, it is a idealistic philosophy, it is an... Like you can absolutely make the case that it is unrealistic and impractical for sure. Like you can you can throw that at the at communism um, as Marx describes it until you're blue in the face. That's fine, um, but don't like don't say I know what communism really is, and you know when what you're talking about is fascism. Um, likewise, contemporary socialism is an attempt to fix what is problematic about. Marx's idealistic vision of communism and the fascist leanings of 20th century communists in general. So when people cry out, I want to be a socialist, that's not them saying, give me a dictator. That's them saying, give me a more egalitarian-like economic system, preferably without any dictators, please. Um, They are attempting to split the difference, whether successfully or not. And again, that's subject to debate. But as always, I give everybody the benefit of the doubt until, you know, you just can't anymore. Um, And Marx is one of those that is, like, wildly misinterpreted a lot of the time. Um, But at the same time, like, Marx's reputation is complicated. Like... As a thinker in the 19th century, I tend to think that everything that he wrote was pretty valuable. Like, Das Kapital is probably one of the most systematic accounts of economics in the history of human accomplishment. The Communist Manifesto is a rousing document of utopian idealism. Um, Marx himself had some really good ideas and some really powerful observations. Again, following Hegel in this phenomenological approach, where he's basically looking at the world and saying, "'This is how it works.'" Rich people make poor people mad, poor people kill rich people, take their stuff, make new rich people, and wash, rinse, repeat. Um, That doesn't strike me as being, you know, wrong. That's kind of how society has been working for a long, long time. Um, although I think that you know Orwell has some pretty good addendums as far as acknowledging that like it's not poor people taking power from rich people, it's like the middle class taking power from rich people to become rich people and leaving the poor right where they were. Um, all that to say that this is this super important thinker who is very much influenced and very much like modeling himself after Hegelian thought. Um, But the other side of this, again, is the destructive side. Um, Marx was a thinker. He sat in his room and wrote documents in which he talked about how philosophically the the poor were going to rise up, take their power, and make the world a better place. Marxists then ran with this. And the 19th century history is littered with figures who are sort of taking communist ideas, taking Marxist ideas and turning them to destructive or potentially problematic ends. Um, This is the birth of anarchism as it was understood in the 19th century. Not as it is today where, you know, on the one hand you have like the super violent anarchists and on the other hand you have like the anarchists who live on communes and are trying to create sustainable farming collectives. Um, At this point anarchists were surprised Angry young, overeducated men with too much time on their hands who were writing way too many pamphlets and making trouble at the local factories. Um, there's a lot of parallels between, like, 19th century anarchist movements and 21st century alt-right movements, for what it's worth. Um, I think somebody around here should be doing a deep dive study of the two and, you know, the psychological factors and sociological factors that motivated both. Uh, But that's a conversation for another day. Um, What I want to stress, as far as 19th century ideological history is concerned, is that the fundamental distinction between the sort of utopians like Marx and Hegel, on the other hand, were opposed to a sort of... Countercultural, revolutionary spirit. People who kind of wanted to destroy things for their own ends. And this is not to say that they weren't utopian. Like, these young men, these young thinkers, these anarchists and nihilists, as they were frequently named, were themselves idealists. Like, the 19th century is full of idealists. Systematic idealists like Kant and Hegel, and less systematic idealists like these revolutionaries. Um, Everybody wanted to make the world a better place, and they wanted to do it fairly violently because Marx had explained to everyone that change comes through violence. So, here we are. Um, But it's sort of like widely acknowledged in the 19th century that these, you know, university students have no idea what they're doing. Um, They're just sort of wildly and stupidly causing trouble without any idea of the consequences of their actions. They'll stir up a bunch of factory workers and those factory workers will set fire to the factory in half the town. These guys will be like, wait, that wasn't the plan. But that's how violence works. Like it rapidly goes out of control. That's the way that these things happen. The 19th century is filled with stories of sort of runaway revolutionary movements. Some that are violently quashed, like Dostoevsky's g- circle, who, you know, he, like, goes to the gallows and is only pardoned at the last minute. Or, for that matter, the, you know, Russian Revolution, guys who thought that they were doing the right thing, and then everything rapidly spun out of their hands, and now they have no idea how to fix it. Um, that's how revolutions work. Um, it is the very rare revolution like the American Revolution which successfully creates a structure of power that endures for any length of time, um, short-lived though that may be. Um, So keep this in mind as we discuss 19th century philosophy, like especially 19th century German philosophy. Um, Marx. Wasn't a revolutionary, but he was very much the inspiration and the fodder for revolutionaries to come. Um, We'll come back to that. The next thinker that I want to address is Kierkegaard. And Kierkegaard is very much an outlier because he kind of was a big deal and he kind of wasn't a big deal. He certainly hailed from left field, like. He's strutting around the streets of Copenhagen writing in Danish, which literally no one can read at that point until it's translated. uh, Very much, you know, like I don't want to call him a solipsist because that's definitely not what he was doing, but his existence certainly looks solipsistic from the outside. Um, Kierkegaard was very self-focused. Where Hegel sort of saw spirit and the the phenomenology of spirit as being a sort of stand-in for all human consciousness, for like a universal human idealism, for a universal human spirit, Kierkegaard sort of took the Hegelian dialectic and narrowed it down into a self-reflective, and introspective tool. Um, so I have heard it said that Kierkegaard's dialectic is one-sided, it never transcends the self. That's kind of the point. Um, Kierkegaard very much struggled with the ability to transcend the self. Like the whole of the concept of anxiety and the whole of the concluding unscientific postscript of philosophical fragments, which is like four times as long as the philosophical fragments, is devoted to sort of trying to overcome one's subjective limitations. And it's wild. Like, Kierkegaard's body of work is one of the most fascinating in the history of philosophy. Um, And, you know, some of his works, like Fear and Trembling and the Philosophical Fragments and Either or, like, I am just constantly going back to because they're just weird and interesting and very, very striking, especially as a Christian. Um, But Kierkegaard's approach in the sort of phenomenological tradition um, is he was very much sort of interrogating himself. Where Hegel is very much looking at the whole sweep of history and Marx is sort of looking at like contemporary history and, and sort of applying these philosophical ideas and philosophical methods to history, Kierkegaard ditches history and is like, what can Di- Hegelian dialectic tell me about me? Um, he makes it extremely personal. Um, he makes it extremely self-reflective. Um, in the grand philosophical tradition, like he is as much a, in a an sense, um, and one of the ways that this manifests for Kierkegaard is in his faith. Um, Kierkegaard was an ardent Christian, um, not exactly in line with like the dominant schools of thinking in Denmark at the time. Like he wrote the some pretty wild stuff criticizing the Church of Denmark. Um, like, one in particular, his attack on Christendom is really polemic, um, and rather, you know, harsh, um, as many have said, but perhaps needed all the same. Um, Kierkegaard took his faith extremely seriously and saw it as an extremely personal thing, um, but because he is personal, it makes sense then that his philosophy would be applied to his faith, to his religion, um, And this gives us some really insightful works like Fear and Trembling where he's exploring this idea that religion itself transcends the sort of responsibilities of um, like ethics and philosophical rationality. Um, Faith for Kierkegaard was a leap of faith, an embracing of the absurd, um, an acknowledgement that it didn't make sense and an acceptance of it anyway. And once inside of faith, then it did make sense. Then it sort of sealed the door behind you. Um, it made a more sense than the world as science usually prescribed it, according to Kierkegaard. But it also required a radical commitment. Um, It required a radical change of self, whether it is in the, the attitude of Abraham going to the mountain, willing to sacrifice his son for, you know, for God's sake, or for the knight of faith, as he calls it, who lives a perfectly normal life, but needs none of it because they are not like indebted to it in any way um or just in his explorations of like the concept of anxiety or the sickness unto death or the works of love where he's sort of interrogating love and anguish and stress and you know personal self-doubt he is extremely inward focused um and very profitable to read for that reason um Kierkegaard I suspect, is really sort of the foundation of contemporary existentialism. Um, Like, as much as Sartre relies on the the philosophy of Nietzsche and Heidegger for sure, um, he is frequently coming back to Kierkegaard as well. Um, Kierkegaard is, like, one of the major proto-psychologists, although his approach is never psychological. Um, Where Nietzsche and Freud both sort of claim to be psychologists and employ methods that, like, examine other people, Kierkegaard was a psychologist insofar as he had plumbed his own depths, like, as deep as people could go. um, And had come up with sort of these acknowledgments of what just being a person was like. The limitations, the fears, the the stressors, um, the anxieties, the concerns. Um, so this too is phenomenology, like Kierkegaard is observing himself the way that Hegel is observing logic and history, the way that Marx is observing revolution and violence. Um, and this will contribute to later phenomenology as well, most notably in the existentialists, but elsewhere too. Um, but the third, the third sort of track, the third sort of Hegelian offshoot here. Um, like the third great line of thinkers that sort of develops into its own thing is a little bit more complicated. Um, It starts with Schopenhauer. And Schopenhauer, I honestly do not know, like, anything about. I know that he was very interested in Eastern philosophy. I know that he was using Hegelian philosophy, but at the same time, like, sort of rejecting it. Schopenhauer was famously antagonistic to Hegel. Like, apparently Schopenhauer even, like, scheduled his lectures at the same time as Hegel's to sort of, like, try and cut down Hegel's students. And failed. Schopenhauer had like no students show up to his classes and got very much like dragged out of the university. Um, Schopenhauer was a punk. that's how it works. Many philosophers are. Um, but at the same time as Schopenhauer is, you know, antagonistic to Hegel and rejecting everything that Hegel stands for, Schopenhauer is also very much indebted to Hegelian thought, I think. Um, He framed himself as a Neo-Kantian, but he talks about will and the world in the same way that Hegel talks about the phenomenology of spirit. Um, He is very interested in this sort of like self-enlightenment in both the Hegelian sense and the Buddhist sense. Um, He is very interested in personal accomplishment, um, in sort of the world as will, as he calls it. Um, where, you know, the world is not to be shaped as this sort of external thing, the way that Kant frequently frames it, but in a more Hegelian sense as something that we shape and frame. We make it the way that we want. Um, And while I don't know much about Schopenhauer because his effect is kind of controversial, like he is important but largely more important as like after his death and the way that he is read by contemporary thinkers than, you know, in and of himself in the 19th century. Schopenhauer is the primary impetus for Nietzsche. And Nietzsche is a big deal. As we've talked about in my Intro to Philosophy class and as we'll talk about just a little bit here. um, If Marx is the guy who is looking at history and applying the Hegelian dialectic to it and Kierkegaard is the guy looking at the self and applying the Hegelian dialectic to it. Nietzsche is the one who sort of approaches this from a radically different direction and notices that Hegel's dialectic means that Hegel, that all the thoughts, all the moments in Hegelian, you know, reinterpretation of history could be otherwise. And basically asserts that, like, all philosophy leading up, the next step in history is what, Nietzsche is primarily concerned with. And after 50 years of revolutionary movements since Hegel wrote The Phenomenology of Spirit, Nietzsche has no you know, illusions about exactly where ideolo- ideological conflict is going to lead him. Um, Nietzsche is not interested in utopia. He doesn't have any conviction that it's a thing that can be uh, like, reached. He's interested in one's selves, sort of attitude towards making the world. He is interested in power, in will, the way that Schopenhauer is, um, and he is interested in the self the way that Kierkegaard is, but he is interested in those two together. The, the person, the, the subject as power, the subject as will, um, the subject as a potential vehicle for change. Um, even in the sense that, like, Marx is interested in violence, Nietzsche is interested in violence as well, but personal violence, not class violence or historical violence. Um, He sees certain individuals, the ubermensch, the supermen, um, as being above ethics in the same way that Kierkegaard is saying that religion is above ethics. But where, for Kierkegaard, you are still subject to God in that case, and it is, in fact, God's, you know, commands that lead you to be above ethics. Nietzsche instead says God too is something that should be transcended by the human spirit. Um, Kierkegaard sees religion as the end in itself. Nietzsche sees the self as the end in itself. Um, We should no longer accept any of these philosophical systems, including Hegel's, um, because In an effort to overcome these things, in an effort for, you know, spirit to realize itself, we have to be completely unfettered and just do whatever the hell we want in short. And I want to stress this too is phenomenology like Nietzsche is also doing phenomenology Nietzsche is doing phenomenology because Nietzsche is examining the world and he is coming to conclusions about the way the world functions he is saying you know I am bigger than the world I can change it according to my will all I need to do is throw off all of those bad ideological systems that came in the past um All of this, like from Hegel through Marx and Kierkegaard and Nietzsche, this is all phenomenology in various forms. Um, It is different in each case, like the approach of phenomenology is very different in each case. But it is all indebted to Hegel and it is all phenomenology. It is all recognition of things as we see them. It is all not an attempt to sort of posit what is the case about the world, but how do we understand it? How does it appear to us? What are the phenomena we can observe and therefore control and predict? Um, And it is at this point that we need to talk about Husserl. And again, I am not a Husserl scholar. I have not read any of Husserl's primary sources. All of my Husserl knowledge is... Like, secondary. I have gotten it from just being around Continental philosophy long enough that I have a pretty decent understanding of where Husserl falls historically and what he has to say ideologically. Um, Husserl is the guy who looks at, you know, a hundred years of people doing phenomenology and says, maybe we should actually have, like, a system for this? Like, how does phenomenology itself actually work? Um... So Husserl is the guy who formalizes phenomenology, who sort of tries to like chart out a language to use in phenomenology, a process to use in phenomenology. Um, he is very much indebted to Hegel insofar as like Hegel is still the like major thinker uniting all phenomenology as its common source. Um, But Husserl sort of like reframes and reinterprets Hegel, starts to look at phenomenology as a philosophical method to be practiced in its own right. Um, And with that in mind, what he ultimately concludes as far as like how does one go about doing phenomenology is what he calls the phenomenological reduction, which is exactly what Pavel Pavlovich wants to talk about as far as Sartre is concerned. Um, And we will talk about Sartre in the next lecture when I finally tie all this together. Um, What's important for Husserl and for this phenomenological reduction um, is that it is a tenuous sort of relationship. It is not something you can come by easily. He sees what Hegel is doing, what Marx is doing, what Kierkegaard is doing, what Nietzsche is doing, and he recognizes that there is this sort of weird philosophical gymnastics involved in coming to this method Um, one has to at the same time be able to like feel to absorb these phenomena to experience things or lebness as he calls it Um, to be able to like have these phenomena like interact with you at the same time as you distance yourself enough from them to be able to observe yourself experiencing them and record yourself experiencing them which like i said is a complex thing to do it's very difficult it requires a certain intellectual or perhaps even spiritual rigor um, one does not just accidentally do phenomenology, because if one is too invested in the world, one cannot properly like observe everything that is going on to you. Like One will be biased, one will not appreciate all the dimensions of what's happening. But at the same time, if one is too divorced, if one stands like too high over them, like Descartes in his meditations, then you're not actually experiencing things at all. Um, you are too far removed to appreciate the phenomena as they in fact affect you. Um, The balancing act here is one that Hegel does fairly successfully, but most of these other thinkers sort of err on one side or the other. Kierkegaard is still wrapped up in who he is, um, although there's a lot of weirdness in Kierkegaard that sort of complicates things. Um, Marx, on the other hand, perhaps is too distant. He is trying to formalize it too much. So Husserl describes phenomenology and the practice of phenomenology, this phenomenological reduction, as requiring two fundamental steps, and it's not a guarantee that it's going to work. Um, Like, there's a lot of problems here. Um, So Husserl acknowledges that, you know, even to do science in general, you have to perform these two steps. Otherwise, it remains purely inductive. Otherwise, there is no, you know, objectivity to be had. And Husserl admittedly struggles, again, with this jump from subjectivity to objectivity that we keep running into in Hegel and Kierkegaard and elsewhere. And Sartre will absolutely pin him to the wall for this. Um, The two steps of the phenomenological phenomenological reduction are first what he calls epike, which is in fact a Greek word, like he's going back to their ideas for this, and a lot of the phenomenologists will do the same. Um, Heidegger especially will see the Greeks as being particularly like uh, keen and knowledgeable about how to express and understand uh, the phenomenon that they experience, and um, Epic for for Husserl is what he what we frequently translate as bracketing um, our experience of reality, our being, so to speak, or being in general. Um, the first step of phenomenology is to sort of draw fences, draw barriers, draw brackets around the experience we are actually having. In short, to remove ourselves from that experience, to sort of take a step back and say to ourselves, okay, this is happening to me, this is affecting me, this is making me react in certain ways. I recognize this as sort of not just something like that is happening to me, that is separate from me, but also as something self-contained, as something that I can like appreciate and discuss as a sort of abstract or, um, like, closed entity. I am going to treat a phenomena as something separate from the background noise of the world. um, Which is a term that will become especially important in Heidegger. Um, And he recognizes that there is a difficulty to this. Like, you cannot just... You know, take an experience and separate it from the entire experience of your life, from all of the background noise in the world, from all of the ongoing causes and effects that are sort of tied into it. Um, this is abstraction. It is a violence that is being performed on you know one's experience. Um, if you know someone close to me dies. That death is something that I can sort of like look at as an experience separate from all of my other experiences, but it doesn't change the fact that like I was doing something before this happened and I'm doing something afterwards. Um, No, you know, individual experience can be separated from all of the experiences that connect to it. Um, When my grandmother died, for example, a couple of years ago, she died over Thanksgiving, um, we had the the we had we all had to drive out to Columbus, Ohio, and you know do Thanksgiving in a hotel because the memorial service was the same day as Thanksgiving, and we were there for a couple of days, you know, on either side. So to me, like I can abstract this experience, but you have to recognize that it is in a context. Um, For me to say, you know, my grandmother died over Thanksgiving and I spent Thanksgiving in a hotel with my family. We did not get, like, a fancy Thanksgiving dinner like we went to Bob Evans for, you know, our meal that day. Um, Is to sort of compress it into this one little story. A story that may be compelling or may not be compelling, that may be informative, may not be informative, that we may examine phenomenologically as, you know, something that happened to me. Me experiencing, like, death and recognizing my own relationship to death. But it also has to be abstracted from everything going on around it. Like the fact that I was not home for Thanksgiving means I did not spend that time with my wife, or with my wife's family, as we usually do. It means that I had to take time out from all of my studies and all of my work as a, as a professor, which means that that was hanging over my head the whole time, and that I was trying to, like, get grading done in the meantime. It was also November, which means it was NaNoWriMo month, and I was doing my level best to work on my novel at that point in time, so I spent quite a bit of my free time at the hotel actually typing up portions of my novel that I had already handwritten. Um, All of these connect to experiences on either side of the event, but the job of the phenomenologist is to take that experience and sort of strip it of all of those connections, to sort of make it as abstract as possible while not reducing it to an unrecognizable form. Um, It is a tricky business, to bracket one's experience, to decide where this experience begins and ends, to separate it from all of the parallel experiences going on around you, to separate it from the continuity of experience that is always happening, and to also separate it so it is just your experience. Like how my mother dealt with my grandmother's funeral, how my, you know, aunt and uncle dealt with my grandmother's funeral all very important to, you know, their, themselves and their own experience, but not necessarily relevant or even important or helpful for understanding how did this death affect me? Um, how did this phenomena occur and influence my attitude and my perspective? So the first step is this bracketing, the epoche But the second is the reduction proper. It is this sort of acknowledgement that you have to accept this bracketed world. It is a move back in. Um, just as one has to sort of distance oneself from the world in order to fully understand and like this particular un- like unit of experience, one still has to go back in and experience it. One has to acknowledge that one was experiencing it. One cannot just say, well, this was a fascinating thing that happened to me. One has to note, like, no, there was an emotional toll that happened when my grandmother died. There was a, like, serious effect on my person when this happened. Um, I was miserable that, that entire time for a variety of reasons, partially to do with, like, my distance from my family and my friends, partially to do with, you know, like the actual death itself, you know, it is separate from me when I look at it this way, when I tell it like a story, when I examine it phenomenologically, but it is also not separate from me. And both motions are critical to this phenomenological reduction overall. The epique, the bracketing, and the proper reduction, the acknowledgement that I am still there, that I am involved in this, that I am looking at myself... Um, And this is a really tricky balancing act as far as Husserl is concerned, to the point that he compares it to the allegory of the cave, and it is frequently talked about as though it were some sort of religious movement. So one of the great interpreters of Husserl that I keep running across as I am doing my research is a guy named Eugene Fink. Um, Fink is the prophet to Husserl's, you know, like, sacred text. Um, and Fink wrote that the philosophical unchaining, the tearing oneself free from the power of one's naive submission to the world, the stepping forth from out of that familiarity with entities which always provides us with security, in one word, the phenomenological epoche, is anything but a non-committal, merely theoretical, intellectual act, It is rather a spiritual movement of oneself encompassing the entire man, and as an attack upon the state of motionlessness supporting us in our depths, the pain of a fundamental transformation down to our roots. In short, this is like a religious conversion. This is a complete. Like meditative and self-involved act, this phenomenological movement, this phenomenological reduction. In order to do phenomenology, one should be as prepared as the monk in his cell. Um, one should be as both as removed and as engaged as the monk in his cell. Um, and for Husserl, this is a prerequisite to all knowledge, like all science to all philosophy, to all proper engagement with the world around us. We need to both bracket the experience, epike, and perform the uh, reduction proper, jump back into it, to sort of like abstract the experience from the world and then experience it as originally we had. Um, it is an incredibly difficult thing to do. Um, And arguably, all of these thinkers, Hegel, Marx, Kierkegaard, Nietzsche, Schopenhauer, these were all people who accomplished this in some way. Um, Who accomplished it to some end, or in some perspective, or with some particular goal in mind. Um, They all accomplished it in different ways as well. Phenomenology, as much as it is sort of like regimented um, and methodical in the way that, that Husserl talks about it here you should know that Husserl is doing phenomenology as he's describing phenomenology. Um, He is describing the phenomenon of phenomenology, and therefore is doing a phenomenology of phenomenology, so to speak. Um... And it is important to note that Husserl is sort of like the foundation of all 20th century phenomenology in that sense. Heidegger is very dependent on Husserl. Um, All of the other phenomenologists, the existentialists, they all recognize Husserl in their lineage, including Sartre, as we will discuss. Um, He is a hugely important thinker to the Continental School because the Continental School is very much a phenomenological school of philosophy like again the analytics don't care much for him because the analytics again don't think phenomenology is a relevant or uh, appropriate method for conducting philosophy but again like totally different attitude here and since we're dealing with continentals for the next few weeks this is what i want to focus on um so husserl is of like major importance Um, I would hesitate to call him more important than Hegel as far as phenomenology is concerned. Um, In another sense, I suspect, although again, I hesitate because I don't know who Searle that well, um, I suspect that he is sort of like Hegel Mark II, that he is very much updating Hegelian philosophy in an attempt to make it so you don't have to go back to the phenomenology of spirit every time you want to do phenomenology. Um, Although most serious philosophers who are doing phenomenology will, because he's just that big a deal. Um, So... This is what I wanted to accomplish, like these are the major thinkers in phenomenological circles in the 19th century, and I hope that this is a pretty good introduction to what we're going to be talking about for the next few weeks. Um, Again, you do not have to remember or know like every single one of these individuals, but we will likely be making reference to them pretty frequently. Um, each one of these thinkers had a major influence on the 20th century, on the latter part of the 19th century, and on the sort of ideological movement of phenomenology as it's existed for the last 100, 200 years. Um, these guys are a big deal, um, and they are a big deal both in the history of philosophy as well as ideological con- contributions, like Hegel very much shaped the idea of phenomenology and the way that philosophy has worked since. Um, Just as, you know, Marx has been a huge influence on political philosophy and economic philosophy, Kierkegaard has been a huge influence on existentialism, and Nietzsche has been a huge influence on philosophy generally, for lack of a better way to sort of compartmentalize him. Um, All of the thinkers we're about to talk about are very much indebted to all of these thinkers as well. Um, and like I said, if we want to discuss more phenomenology, go for it. Send me an email. Like, let me know that you want to you know, deep dive on like, the genealogy of morals of Nietzsche, or you, know, you want more about Kierkegaard, or you want me to like, actually break down the first few chapters of Hegel's Phenomenology of Spirit for you. Go ahead, let me know. Um, phenomenology isn't necessarily my favorite branch of philosophy, but it is one that I am weirdly knowledgeable about. Um, I have a lot of experience dealing with these guys. Um, And heck, if you want to know more about Husserl, so do I. Give me an excuse to research him for a while. Um, Let me know. But yeah, as always, you can email me at profbkozlowski 2 at gmail.com. There should be a link somewhere in the description or something. Look around my various profile pages on Anchor and elsewhere, and I'm sure you'll be able to track it down. I'm always looking for more questions. Um, As yet, we have no idea what the semester is going to hold for me. At this point, I'm only signed up for two classes so far, both sections of Intro to Philosophy, so no need for new lectures. Um, But if I get tapped for either a general humanities course or an ethics course, you might have another slew of video or uh, podcasts coming in as I sort of record my lectures for the poor stranded COVID victims. Um, By which I mean more than just the people suffering from the virus, but also the people who can't go to school because of virus. Um, So more news on that in the coming weeks. Um, or for all I know, I'll just be dropping these things. I'll probably record a couple of new lectures for the the classes that I have already taught. Um, I intend to record new syllabus lectures every semester just because I, you know, learn every semester. Um, And there might be some other things that I'm just dissatisfied with, so we'll fix that hopefully. Uh, At any rate, It should be, hopefully, another productive year for Professor Kozlowski lectures, even if it's a lousy year for us in general. Um, So keep on listening, keep on emailing me with those questions, and I'll talk to you again soon.